Hi, this is Nahani Rouse. Welcome back to Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive, where gender, history, and Jewish culture meet. I know I'm a girl. All the people around me, all the people I'm supposed to respect and listen to say that I'm a, a boy, and I know they're wrong. Why would I trust them on anything else? Abby Stein grew up in a tight-knit, insular Hasidic community in Brooklyn. Abby calls it one of the most gender-segregated societies in America. From early childhood, she knew she was a girl. But from the time she was born, her entire community celebrated the fact that she was a boy. In this episode of Can We Talk, author and transgender activist Abby Stein describes her childhood, her discovery of non-binary genders in Jewish mysticism, and how she parted ways with her community. This episode is the third in our three-part series of author interviews this fall. Though her parents were against it, Abby Stein enrolled at Columbia University when she was 21. Three years later, she came out as trans and began the process of transitioning. She hasn't spoken with her parents since. Abby regularly teaches and speaks about transgender issues in the Jewish community and beyond. Her memoir, Becoming Eve, is out this month. It chronicles her childhood, coming of age, and transition. I met Abby at her apartment in Harlem, not far from Columbia. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start by describing the community that you grew up in? Um, whenever people say that, I ask them if they have five hours, which if that, I think that would be the bare minimum to give you a bit of an understanding of it, but I will try my best to do it in a minute. It's a community that is, in one way or another, trying to recreate something that I personally don't think ever existed, but in their mind, it's this hypothetical, utopian or dystopian, depending on your point of view, a religious lifestyle that might have existed in the shtetls, the uh, cultural villages in Eastern Europe where Jews lived in the 18th and 19th century. They have this idea, this version where everyone was kind of towing the line, everyone was following the rules. So they created a community where they only speak Yiddish, for example. Um, I didn't speak any other language fluently. I mean, I, I, I knew Hebrew, I knew Aramaic, but at home we only spoke Yiddish. Um, they dress, obviously, um, that's what people know. They dress in black and white, quite literally and figuratively. Um, big families is another big part, which is not necessarily negative. The family life is, there is beautiful parts to it. There's beautiful parts to the way they, the way they celebrate holidays and Shabbat. Obviously, I think personally that the negative parts outweigh the positive parts, which is why I left. But it is important to point out there are some parts that are nice. Um, but as a whole, the concept is to live a sheltered life. Let's call it a folktale, as a mindset. They have this idea that they're trying to recreate. And it affects every, every part of life. Um, another good example would be pop culture. I, I sometimes joke, like, the forbidden band that I was aware of was Miami Boys Quiet, an ultra-Orthodox Jewish band that was in English. That was the forbidden band. I didn't even know about I don't even know what the pop culture bands were in the 90s. Or take TV shows. I don't know, Seinfeld, the most Jewish show that was probably ever around in the 90s. It wasn't something, oh, we don't watch that. It was like, we don't, I mean, we knew about television because they're fighting very strongly against it, but we didn't know exactly which shows even exist. 
for me growing up, I didn't know gay people existed until I think it was around 2008 because that's when the first fighting for legalizing gay marriage started. And there were some people on the fringe of the community who wanted to talk about it, while most of the community still didn't talk about it. And I didn't know that there are other trans people out there until I went online for the first time in, um, when I was 20 years old in 2012. Um, you say, based on research that you've done in gender studies, that the Hasidic community is one of or the most gender segregated communities in, in America. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could give some examples that illustrate that. So a few examples. Um, I can start with a more obvious one, I think, of the Jewish community. Think about ordaining women. Okay, I know it's a conversation happening in the modern Orthodox world. I think the mainstream modern Orthodox community is still not, not happy with it, but it's a conversation that is happening. And the Hasidic community, that is so beyond, like women are just not in the public space. I mean, they are leaders, woman for woman, but there's also women who are like big speakers or on their own, but that is only within the frame of woman. Anything that's done community-wide, any events, any speeches, any decisions, it doesn't even cross anyone's mind to ask, why aren't women at the table? The, the part where you realize how segregated it is physically um, and culturally, is it doesn't even cross anyone's mind that having women as the leaders in the community is even a thing. Take more first cousins, okay? Boys and girls, first cousins, above age 9 to 12, are not supposed to mingle with each other. I mean, they might know each other in some families. Some families, they wouldn't even know each other. But they don't play together. They don't talk to each other. And we're talking here first cousins. A woman's place in society isn't even discussed other than you be at home, have a lot of babies. I don't think it would be even wrong to say that maybe even half of the women are happy with that. Um, I think it's more because ignorance is bliss, but that, that's not my place to say. But what bothers me more is the half of the community and, and the women that are not happy with that and just do that because either that is the only option or because they know that they can't do anything else. So one of the things that you describe in your book is your first haircut. Can you describe what that was like? So in Hasidic, uh, culture, it's a cultural thing, it's not like a law, but it's its pretty much what everyone does, is that boys under the age of three don't get a haircut at all. They let their hair grow naturally, um, which also means that for boy, for young boys and young girls who are almost three, you can barely tell the difference other than on the clothes because everyone has long hair and, and, and so on. And then the tradition is that on the third birthday, boys get their first haircut and in the Hasidic community when they get the payas, the side curls. It's kind of a big deal. Even at that young age, I already wanted to look like a girl. To me, it was just like, why does my old my sister right above me have long hair? And why do I need to have, why do I need to cut my hair? I liked my hair. Um, so I remember like I ran into the bathroom um, to get away from it. I remember crying for a lot of the time. Like my whole family and my grandparents and my uncles and everyone was in the room. Um, but yeah, and then that's, I think that is pretty much all I remember. And, and I also remember kind of, blanking out or blacking out parts of the day, which is, uh, I think, my brain's way of dealing with trauma, which is, which is weird because people like, well, like, it wasn't that, like, it was a nice party and taken to, um, to, the, to the school where you gave out kind of packs of, uh, of nash, so to speak, packs of sweet things. And it could be a sweet moment, but for my brain, for me, it was registered as a trauma. You describe each man in your family taking turns cutting a lock of your hair. Yeah. That's just such a powerful moment and powerful image. What, what's going on kind of 
culturally in that moment? It's considered a ritualistic and, a, and a, almost a holy thing. And everyone taking a part of it is everyone taking a part in declaring that this baby is becoming a boy. If a bar mitzvah is a boy becoming a man, that an upshare and like a three-year-old is, is, a, is a baby becoming a boy, so to speak. And everyone kind of taking part of it. And it's almost this ritualistic... At least for me, it felt, I don't think that's the intention so much. For me, it felt this ritualistic thing of everyone declaring that you are a boy and we're going to make it visual to everyone. Going to make it visible, make sure that everyone can tell that. But but yeah, it, it has a bit of a beautiful part to it. It has a bit of a ritualistic part to it. Um, and to me, it always felt like it's everyone being like, you are a boy now, which I didn't appreciate. Do, do you remember actually feeling like that that's wrong? I definitely remember the nominal feeling. In my preteens, I didn't really have a lot of friends and I didn't go out to play a lot when everyone would go out and play because I didn't enjoy playing with the boys and playing with the girls wasn't an option. And, and again, the types of games was different and there's a way of being a boy and there's a way of being a girl. So as you were growing up and kind of keeping this secret hidden that you felt like you were a girl... Yeah. Were you also cognizant of the lower status of girls in your community? I think I was to some extent. Um, here's the thing. I don't think I ever registered that as lower at that time. Maybe I did to some extent, but in my mind, that was the ideal. And one thing that is clear for me throughout my childhood is that my brain identified as a woman. My brain looked on things that were like, this is this is masculine, this is what boys do, don't like it, this is what girls do, like it. No doubt to me, and that has been throughout my life. And, and I'm sure that parts of it were influenced by society at that time, the Hasidic community. There was almost this ideal, and I think it's uh, um, expressed a bit in the prayer that I have in the book written out that I said when I was nine years old, where my idea of being a woman was I'm going to be a housewife and have a lot of babies which very much came from this is what I knew that women do. I think I was aware that, for the lack of a better description, women have a submissive role in society. Um, where they're not in the leadership, they have, uh, if they are, it's usually behind the scenes and, and so on. But the desire of this is who I am overpowered any feeling of, oh, it's a bad, uh, it's, it's, women have less rights, women have less um, agency. And also, there's a weird thing where during teenage years, women have less obligations, so to speak. Like, while teenage boys would be in yeshiva, would be in school for 10 to 12 hours a day, um, girls have, I think, from 8 to, like, 4 um, uh, school day. I guess you can see it as less obligation, which comes from a sexist point of view. And the reason why girls are less in school is because only boys are obligated not to waste a single moment from studying. I was at least nominally aware of the fact that um, if I if I am a girl, I wouldn't be a rabbi, and I would, which was a given almost, at least in one way or another, if... Like, as a boy, like, I'm talking, like, right now, you have my, boy and my grandparents have their own synagogues. My dad has his own, he didn't growing up, and now he has his own synagogue with followers. Um, it was very clear that they're very different roles, and that men have, let's say, more agency, but it, that didn't bother me. My desire to be who I was overpowered everything. You are also from this Hasidic dynasty as a descendant of the Baal Shem Tov. Do you still relate to your 
lineage as a source of pride? To some extent, and I, I think I came to reappreciate it and, and to readapt it in the last few years. There are literally two Hasidic quotes in my book. There's one right at the beginning that is from the Baal Shem Tov, which is, let me fall if I must fall, the one I will become will catch me. And then at the beginning of the apologue, there's another quote that talks about uh, reincarnation. And it says, like, this is known according to the mysticism of reincarnation, that at times a female would be in a male body. Um, and that is also a quote from one of my ancestors, one of the earliest Hasidic rabbis. So, yes, obviously I do to some extent. Um, I, I do I do think that some part that, that I got some positive things even today, whatever it is, public speaking, which is everyone in my family did, and I my dad gave me quite a few tips that I still use until today. I'm quite obsessed with genealogy. Um, I, I loved I love studying it and looking at it. And if not for nothing else, this is part of who I am. It's like when someone talks about the Baal Shem Tov, a small percentage of his DNA and his blood is in me. Maybe a bit more than a small because I'm five times descended of him in different ways. So it's a reality. And people ask me, for example, if I observe Shabbat. My go-to is always, I celebrate Shabbat. I celebrate. I celebrate holidays. I celebrate Judaism. Not so much observe, which is very much my approach to um, everything in life. So I have the same approach to Hasidic Judaism. And, and I think there are some legitimate Hasidic messages. And I sincerely believe that Abal Shemtov in some way, one way or another, was a hippie. And if you study the stories, it makes a lot of sense. They were definitely not the establishment that Hasidic Jews are today. You were starting to question your beliefs at a certain point. And yeah. it, it seems like that kind of came on the heels of realizing that you could not express your female identity. And it almost seems like it was easier to question the existence of God than to say, well, I'm actually a woman. I mean, there were times, I would say first I did try to make sense of my gender identity and trying to find ways of dealing with it. But then when I was around 12 is when I, I got to the point where I was like, okay, this doesn't make any sense because no one talks about it and everyone is either a boy or a girl and how do I fit into this? And then at the same time, that came coupled with the idea of, I know I'm a girl, all the people around me, all the people I'm supposed to respect and listen to say that I'm a, a boy and I know they're wrong. Why would I trust them on anything else? And at the same time, also, maybe I should start exploring religion and it's going to go away. The gender things are going to go away. Kind of a, something similar to pray the gay way uh, in my own form of hoping that I will find some other uh, medium of expressing my identity struggles and it would go away. It obviously never did, but that kind of what led me to a path where I started questioning and everything to a point that when I actually left, it wasn't because of my gender identity. It was because of religion. It was because I didn't believe in it. And, and it gets really hard to live. I think it's one thing to live a nominally, a nominally Jewish life if you don't believe in it. It's one thing to go to synagogue maybe once a week or enjoy the communal parts of it, fine. It's really, really hard to live a lifestyle where every second of every day is controlled by that religion when you don't believe in it. So that is kind of what ultimately it led me to. And, but a big part of what caused me to even start questioning, because most people, I'm not saying they aren't rebels. I think teenage rebellion exists everywhere. But most people don't question the existence of God, specifically not at a young age. I think maybe it happens when people are in their 20s. Um, 
But a big part of why I was asking questions at an earlier age was because of my gender identity and these kind of like two parts of like, I can't trust these people and let's find some other outlet to express myself. Was that painful? It, I mean, parts of it, yes, and also relieving at the same time. Um, I mean, it's definitely painful to the sense of this is the only world I knew, but I always had a rebellious streak, and I would be lying if I wouldn't say that part of it felt good, of being like, you all are don't know what you're doing, and I am, like, different, and, like, whatever. There was definitely... And also, as I think it's a team that someone could pick up throughout the book, which is... The desire to feel different always felt good because it was a way for me to express what I felt internally. There was definitely a part where I didn't feel comfortable with who I was being told I was and kind of expressing that outwardly in ways that had nothing to do necessarily with it. And that sometimes took on ways of rebelling in a more rebellious way of like causing trouble. But actually for most of the time, it was rebelling in a religious sense. Um, uh, a teacher in, at school and she even once called me the kosher rebel I was like making trouble but in, in my own way like fasting days that I wasn't supposed to fast or wake up at midnight to not do anything crazy but just to sit and study and, and, and whatever sneaking into the mikveh not to do who knows what but to simply go to the mikveh kind of that was ways for me to try to express it and at times it was legitimate attempts to figure out my religious beliefs and find space for myself. Can you talk about some of the Kabbalistic writings that you discovered that were like a major revelation in terms of gender? So yeah, so when I was around 15, um, I did have a time where um, I was about to leave and then ultimately got into Kabbalistic teachings. And that is when I discovered for the first time a text that literally says, translated into English, that at times... A male would be in a female body, and a female would be in a male body. Um, and they're using kind of the term souls, that a soul, uh, which is gendered in Kabbalistic teachings, um, could be in a different body. They also talk about a soul could be a mix of different um, gender identities. Um, and that was the first time in my life that I find that I found some form of, I don't want to say not a lot more than justification, some form of making sense of it, and some form of legitimacy. And... Um, I do believe that some of these texts were legitimately coming from a place where either the writer, the author, or the people around, it was it was a conversation. I don't think they knew how to make sense of it exactly, but I do believe that it's a reality that queer people and trans people in one way or another were around throughout history. It is one specific text that I've been using a lot that um, is, this, is a, a 13th century rabbi describing their feelings of literally wanting to be a girl and saying the words of cursed be the one who told to my dad it's a boy um, and saying that like a prayer which was very personal to me also like literally writing a prayer of I want to be a woman and I wish I could have been a woman um, so these things have definitely existed throughout history and, and it's it's very interesting because to me at the time there were just merely things that made me feel slightly more comfortable and then today, as I came to re-embrace my Judaism and re-embrace the parts that I think are beautiful, I've been able to share these with people. And as I've said, I've given over 100 different classes and I have over 40 different source sheets online. And the response that we're getting is really powerful. And I also think these texts go beyond religion. Forget for a second if we believe in it or not, or if we think there's anything interesting about it internally. 
But this shows that in the 16th century, or the six genders at least that the Talmud talks about in the 2nd and 6th century, it was a conversation that people were having. It's the one simple reality that we, we were around throughout history. It's one of the most common arguments that I think trans people get, that I hear a lot, that it's like Hollywood and the media affecting us. Hollywood and the media didn't force the Talmud to say that there are six genders, not once, but hundreds of times, and constantly talk about it, which clearly shows that it was a reality of life. And again, we can go to argue exactly what it is they're talking about, but that's not the point. The point is that Kabbalistic teachings understood that humanity goes beyond male and female. Um, and that has been extremely powerful. You got married when you were 19, and you had a son. Yeah. And the moment when you first hold your son in the book is a, is a beautiful moment. It's like everything else disappears for you. Um, what happened to your, with your gender identity in that moment? I don't think my gender identity was there, other than there is, was this moment when the doctor said it's boy. There was this moment of where my response was like, are you sure? Which is probably the weirdest response that a doctor has ever gotten when he tried to tell someone the gender of a baby. Um, but during the time when I actually saw him, I, I think as I say, everything else was gone. I wasn't, gender wasn't on my mind, to be honest. Um, I mean, I guess... It could be that the, my own struggles informed a bit of thought, that, and I think I literally whispered into his ear that I'm going to do everything in my power to protect you. Like, did was in, was at least partially influenced by the fact of like I know what I struggled, and I want to make sure that you don't do that. Which was ultimately kind of during that same time for me the kind of the straw that broke the back of the camel. You know, the final punchline where I was like, I can't continue to do that because how can I raise a child to be real and to be true to himself or to herself or to themselves when I'm not true to myself. Um, so that was definitely a part of the general experience of having a child. Did, did it take a lot of strength for you to leave your family and your community? Oh, okay. So here's the thing. Um, at least with my... Um, with my ex and my child, I didn't actually leave them. They left me quite literally and, 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 and figuratively. For me, it was, there was no other option uh, A point. Um, it got to a point, but also I did try to make it work, specifically with my ex, and I had a child. I wasn't going to leave him. Um, and there was a period of quite a few months, almost a year, after I told my ex that I don't believe and that I'm not religious and I don't keep Shabbat and I don't fast on Yom Kippur, the harshest things, that we still try to make it work. We worked hard on it until her family stepped in and made sure that that doesn't happen. But I really tried to make it work with my son. It was only after I realized that that isn't happening, that I was, there's nothing left for me. Like, why would I stay religious? Um, with my family, I knew that my father's philosophy and what he always told other people, because he has been working with teens at risk, Hasidic version, smartphones and girls, not like drugs, um, Hasidic version of teens at risk. He's been working with that for quite some time. And his approach has always been, even when people become not religious, he would tell parents not to reject them. Because uh, it wasn't coming from the most humanitarian place. It was coming more from, this is the only chance that your child will ever come back. Um, so that kind of like I knew I wouldn't fully lose my family and I didn't until I came out. 
so yeah, so that was that that was kind of what went down in my head. And but the ultimate message to me was this is not possible anymore. And whatever this was, yeah, it was the combination of the radical religious life that I don't believe in. It was gender, though even after I left and even after I got online for the first time, which I only knew how to do because I was told all the negative things about the internet and I knew that what Wi-Fi is and I knew that I can connect a tablet to Wi-Fi and so on. Um, and that's when I already learned that trans people exist. It took me three more years to actually take any solid steps towards transitioning because it's still, I was still afraid of it. It was still too much. And I think looking back, it was a hard three years, but it was a good thing to do because it kind of split up my uh, tra- my, my experience of, of, of transitioning and leaving everything because to some extent, leaving the Hasidic community is, it has similarities to coming out. Did you know that coming out would mean losing contact with most of your family? Here's the thing. I knew that, I think I was quite aware that my parents would have a problem of me being seen with them in a community setting, specifically because I knew that my father's philosophy was always for people not to shun kids. I was a bit, I I was hoping that at least they would continue to talk to me maybe on the phone and maybe at home I would be able to go. I I was really hoping that. Um, I I think a big part that I actually learned after that, that, um, I mean, I I knew it a bit before, but it became very clear after that. My dad's as much as I wish to hope that my dad during that three years that I was not religious, that he was still talking to me, that it was just because he was a dad, which might've been a small part of it. The bigger part of it was a hope that I'm gonna come back one day if he's nice to me, which sorry to say, that's not parenting. Um, that's not that's not the way it should be. Um, and then I think he realized when I was talking to him about transition, it was one of his first questions after making some sexist statements was, is there a way back? And I think when he realized very much that that's it, I'm never, I'm never becoming Hasidic again, was when he decided that he's not going to talk, which is, if you ask me, as a parent, really bad. Um, my mom, I do believe legitimately that was the strongest part for her. Her child is a child. And from what I have heard, some people in my family claim is that she would have a relationship with me if my dad allowed it. Um, I don't know if that's accurate or not. Um, let's put it this way. I, I love my mom. She's amazing. How do you cope with being separated like that? I sometimes realize that I maybe it should bother me more and it doesn't bother me enough, but I think it's human nature to cope with it. It does get hard, I think, for anyone who follows me on Facebook, specifically sometimes during holidays or family weddings. I've had two siblings who got married already since I came out. Um, one of them, I wasn't even in New York, which I think was good. Um, the second one, um, just my sister got married last year. I went to the chuppah, which is the ceremony which in every Hasidic community is always done outside. Um, so I was kind of watching from above. It was in a courtyard below where the wedding venue was, and I was just standing on the street where no one, I don't think many people recognize me, but even if they could, I'm allowed to stay in the street. There's nothing they could do about it, um, which was really helpful. Um, I'm really, gr- I, I like to focus on the family. Why was it helpful? I mean, being there just to feel like I'm still part of the family and, and, and being there and I really liked it. She was, she's the oldest one of my three. I have three younger sisters. I have five older sisters and four brothers and three more sisters. And I was really close with all three of them. So it was for me to feel that I'm there. Um, but also, I, I like to focus on the silver linings and things and always. And maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm stupid. Maybe I'm just trying to tell myself something. But I do have two siblings that I'm still in touch with. 
I have about 10 to 15 first cousins that I'm in touch with in one way or another. Most people my age don't have more than two siblings, don't have more than 10 first cousins. So I definitely still have family. And you found out about a whole other branch of your family that you never knew about, right? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I discovered this whole branch of the Stein part of my family, my, my grandfather's side of the family, second and third cousins who live in Israel who are secular. It's, it's very, it, they have been amazing. And it, to me, people say a lot of like chosen family and chosen family replacing. To me, it started, and they, they were telling me that a few times, and it was amazing to me. They're telling me, you do have family now. You're like, you have, and, and it's extremely powerful to me of not just chosen family, but they are biological family. And it's, it's, it's extremely powerful. What do you miss about the Hasidic community? I get that question a lot. What do you miss about the Hasidic community? In all honesty, I don't miss anything. If I want something, I do it. And people use it, oh, you can't have it both ways. I kind of disagree. I mean, the only thing that I don't have is the, the kind of community life, but I don't want that. I have some beautiful communities. I don't want the kind of community where everyone is in your business the whole time. You joined the steering committee for the Women's March in 2019. At that time, many Jewish women felt torn about participating in the march because one of the founders had a very public alliance and relationship with the professed anti-Semite Louis Farrakhan. He had, among other things, called Jews cockroaches. And she refused to disavow him, talking instead about what he had done for her personally and for the African-American community in general. What was it like for you to join the committee at that time? So that, that was an, uh, an interesting um, experience for me. It wasn't something that was done lightly. And my approach when it comes to anti-Semitism is very similar to my approach when it comes to dealing with um, transphobia and LGBT people and homophobia. If we only talk and engage with people that we agree with, there's no point to activism. Because, yes, talking in echo chamber is beautiful, but they are, we're always going to have to engage with people. And I think the litmus test, so to speak, is are these people listening and are they taking action based on what you do? I'd, I would never deny that there were some issues, but the reality is, and that was kind of what I had to make sure before I joined that, where I realized that they are listening. Maybe it's not going as fast enough as we wanted it to, but the reality is that anyone who listens to the speeches at the 2019 Women's March, it was probably the biggest, the biggest awareness against anti-Semitism that I've ever seen in a non-Jewish setting. Every speaker, everyone was talking about it. It was at the forefront. I wish it was there in 2017 or 2018, but in 2019 it was there. And I take just a bit of credit for that together with the other two amazing Jewish women that were on the steering committee. It, the reality was that it was an extreme show of solidarity that we can, it's not perfect, but it's getting better and better and it's something that we can and will continue to do. You're also involved in other kinds of activism. For example, you've been involved in organizing against ICE's treatment of undocumented immigrants. I see intersectionality is not, intersectionality is not some cool statement. It's a reality. And we continue, in, and I think when we help, I feel that when I help immigrants, I'm also helping as a proud, queer, Jewish, trans woman, I'm also helping Jews as a whole. I'm also helping trans people, and, and we will continue to do that. Abby, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Abby Stein's new book is called Becoming Eve, 
My Journey from Ultra-Orthodox Rabbi to Transgender Woman. It's one of the reads on this year's Jewish Women's Archive book club list. If you'd like to take part, visit jwa.org slash book club. To find Abby Stein's source sheets on references to multiple genders in Jewish texts, visit sepharia.org and search Abby Stein. This episode of Can We Talk is supported by Keshet for LGBTQ equality in Jewish life. Inspired by Abby's journey, join Keshet at an LGBTQ and ally teen Shabbaton weekend retreat where you can meet friends, learn new skills, and have fun just being yourself. Learn more at keshetonline.org slash teenshabbaton. Thank you for joining us for Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. This episode was produced by Marielle Carr. Our team also includes Judith Rosenbaum and Becky Long. Our theme music is by Girls in Trouble. You can find Can We Talk online at jwa.org slash canwetalk and anywhere you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes and share your favorite episodes with your friends so that others can find us. If you'd like to help us produce more episodes of Can We Talk, please go to jwa.org slash donate to make a contribution. Do you have a story to tell or someone whose story you'd love to capture? Download Story Aperture. That's JWA's new mobile app that puts the power of story collecting in your hands. Inside the app, you'll find suggestions and prompts for recording your own story or conducting an interview. You can save stories in the app and upload directly to JWA's archives. Download from your app store, record, and share today. Can We Talk is moving to a seasonal schedule, so we'll be in production mode for the next few months. But stay tuned for a trailer with sneak peeks at our spring season. Until then, I'm your host, Nahani Rouse.